Okay, how you doing, everybody? And welcome to the John Riley Project. This is episode number 315. It's April 5th. It's Wednesday. It's hump day. How you doing, everybody? Um, we got a great show in store for you here today. We got a lot actually on the table. You know, as my buddy Hacksaw would say, we got a lot of topics on the table. We're going to talk about, uh, you know, just sort of the, the community enthusiasm, you know, about San Diego State basketball now that they're back in town and just want to focus kind of on the, like I say, the community aspect of it, because I think it was a great rallying point for all of us San Diegans. Um, got updates on the Nathan Fletcher situation. There's been some um, new comments and, and thoughts on the homelessness issue. It's been in the news. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about the the Poway Unified Bond. There was just an op-ed written about it in our local newspaper. Um, there's an update on the Rancho Bernardo cannabis situation. There's all kinds of dysfunction in the city of La Mesa with permitting and digital signage. Um, just a ton going on here. I even have some streaming television recommendations, and we'll get into the community forum where you can participate. If you have thoughts or comments, You know, please leave those in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube, type in your thoughts and comments. We'll get you involved. Sometimes I get people involved in the middle of the segments. Sometimes we have um, comments we save till the end. A lot of those YouTube comments, we kind of put those at the end. So you're welcome to, to follow along there. And by the way, if you're interested in having me cover additional episodes or on new topics that are going in and around San Diego, just send me a message to john at johnreillyproject.com. And there you just drop me an email. Tell me if if there's a particular issue you want me to cover or if you'd like to sponsor an episode, you know, send me a note there and we can make arrangements to make that happen. Okay, so here we go. Got a lot going on. And I really want to start here right away with what's going on with our San Diego State basketball program. And, you know, they just came back to town. And I just to bring everyone up to speed, you know, this t- our team, our local team was in the national championship game. I mean, there are roughly 350 Division I basketball programs in America. And San Diego State was in the final two. And they came up short on Monday night to the University of Connecticut. They put a heck of a fight. Uh, but, you know, we're just all so proud of these guys. You know, they're back in San Diego. They've been greeted warmly um, by their uh, by the fans. You know, there was like a you know, they had the police escorting the buses from the airport back to campus, people cheering them all along the way, including when they arrived at San Diego State. I just think it's great. I mean, what the Aztecs accomplished here is was so remarkable, so unlikely. I mean, I think there's better chances of the Padres winning the World Series than the San Diego State Aztec basketball program making the NCAA finals. I mean, it was that big of a deal. Um, so what a great thing. I mean, the San Diego community coming together. It's been in the news. You know, you look on the local news, the San Diego News Tribune, it's front and center still because there's so much love and warmth being spread there. I think it's great. You know, they really put the program on the map. Um, You know, I think in many ways, San Diego State is going to be thought of and seen in the same, through the same lens that a program like Gonzaga is, where it's from a mid-major conference, but it's one of the premier programs. And who knows, San Diego State may move into the Pac-12 or the Big 12. I think that's terrific. Now, here's one topic I'd like to get your thoughts and comments on. They're talking about maybe possibly having a parade for San Diego State basketball. Um, and 
is that something you think we should do? I mean, it's it's a second place team. I mean, they lost in the finals. I mean, we love these guys. We want to support them, but a parade? I you know the the Chargers got a parade when they lost in the Super Bowl. Essentially, they came in second place. Do we want to have a parade for our Aztecs in San Diego? Like, in my opinion, no. Um, in my opinion, a parade for a second-place team would just be so San Diego. Um, these guys definitely need to be celebrated and given a huge round of applause. Maybe, you know, Mark Ziegler, one of the columnists in the, in the UT, was saying maybe they need to have an event at, at um, Viejas Arena, you know, hosted by Ted Leitner, and to really give all these guys the recognition and love that they deserve. I think that's a great idea, but I would, I would definitely stop short of a parade. They're talking about that. You know, Brian, Brian Dutcher, the head coach of the Aztecs, getting lots of love. You can see how he builds a great program, a lot of brotherhood amongst his players. I mean, there are no NBA prospects on this team, but they came together and they all believed in one another and they all supported one another. I mean, what, Brian Fisher has built there in the last six years is worthy of huge praise. And of course, that's built on the foundation of Steve Fisher when he came to San Diego. By the way, a disgrace that San San Diego former head coach Steve Fisher is not in the Basketball Hall of Fame. I mean, this is a guy that's won national championships, brought a team to, uh, to three Final Fours, and resurrected San Diego State from being one of the worst basketball teams in the nation to one of the top two. I mean, one of the most amazing turnaround stories in all of college sports. So um, the Aztecs are going to be good next year. Again, I encourage you, if you have a chance, go out to uh, to Viejas Arena. You know, when the season starts again, they'll start playing again, usually like around November 10th or so is when the season begins. But it's just a great environment at Viejas. We're really proud of these young men. They've They've, they've represented our city. They've done it with class. Um, and they performed on the field. The buzzer beater by Lamont Butler in the semifinals of FAU is a memory that's going to be etched in, you know, in San Diego history for the remainder of time. I mean, it was just such a beautiful event. But just love these guys and really support them. So um, just w- want to get your thoughts and comments on that. And, uh, oh, here's we already got some people chiming in on the live stream, you know, saying, hey, I hope someone this is from Steve Maz. He says, I hope someone has a solution to the Poway Unified School District school debt bomb. OK, we're going to get to that story in a moment. That's on the agenda. We're going to be talking about. I got a bunch going on here. We're going to be talking about Nathan Fletcher and homelessness, the Poway school bond, which is still cooking. We're going to talk about that. We're going to get into Rancho Bernardo cannabis outlet, um, student enrollment this down countywide. We're going to talk a little bit about that um, dysfunction in La Mesa with their permitting and signage. And it's kind of some interesting things going on on La Mesa, but you know, just a lot of stuff. And oh, by the way, you know, we just talked about Aztecs here. If you want to talk more sports, you know, I, I host another podcast or actually co-host it with Lee Hacksaw Hamilton, the legendary sports talk radio host and former play-by-play man of the Chargers, of the Seattle Seahawks, of the USC Trojans and of the Arizona State Sun Devils. I mean, Hacksaw, one of the, 
top sports broadcasters in America. And uh, we do a podcast every Thursday at three. We live stream um, and most Mondays at three we live stream. So I uh, encourage you to check out Lee Hacksaw Hamilton. You can look it up wherever you get your podcasts and check them out on YouTube and, and then the like. If you really want to do a lot more sports, um, that's where we take care of all of our sports business. So, OK, um, let's move on. And I want to talk about our, our good friend, Nathan Fletcher. OK, so this is uh, this is kind of an interesting topic. OK, we, we covered the Nathan Fletcher issue last week and, you know, and I gave him great praise. I mean, this is when he came out and said that he was going to be seeking therapy for um, some of the trauma he, he had as a child. He was going to be seeking counseling for his alcoholism. He wanted to put his family first. He wanted to put his health first. And that was the news that we had, you know, approximately seven days ago at this moment. And I was really supportive of that. I thought that was terrific on him. And he was going to be stepping down from his state Senate campaign. Well, shortly after I released that podcast episode, we learned the second half of that story. And that's when we learned more about that there were um, affairs with other women. There was potentially some sexual, I don't know if it's assault or if it's harassment that was going on. Um, There are threats that have been made to people's jobs, and it turned into a really messy thing. Um, Really messy for Nathan Fletcher, messy for his family, messy for the other women involved, and messy for really the San Diego County Board of Supervisors as they're trying to conduct business moving forward. Um, And I want to just make a few comments on this because partly because I was praising him because of him seeking help. And then shortly after that, the other shoe dropped and we learned more of the story because I was getting comments on my YouTube channel. Like, why are you praising Nathan Fletcher? You know, don't you realize that he did this and did that? And I'm like, okay, that all broke later. So we'll get into some of that. But um, yeah, there's uh yeah, Yuri Bolin on the live stream says, hey, the first story is never the whole story. And you're right, Yuri. Um, there's always more to it. But let's kind of break this down. So San Diego County Supervisor Jim Desmond um, on Monday became the first board member to call for Nathan Fletcher to step down immediately. So already we're getting pressure from his fellow uh Uh, Board of Supervisors, they want him to resign immediately over the accusations of sexual misconduct uh, for the 4th District Supervisor, and it's getting in the way of county business. And it's interesting because Fletcher said he was going to resign on May 15th. It kind of makes you wonder why, you know, what's what's the deal? I mean, if if you're going to resign, especially if you're going to design in disgrace, I mean, why would you postpone it? Why wouldn't you just drop the hammer and go. But he wants to stick around till May 15th. And that's what's causing a lot of this disruption on the board. So, um, you know, Fletcher um, announced his plan to resign just days after he was taking medical leave for mental health issues and ending his state Senate campaign. And one day after filing a lawsuit that accused him of kissing and groping a Metropolitan Transit System employee while he led its board of directors. Now, Desmond went on to say, supervisors do not have the power to remove someone, but he should not be getting paid by taxpayers. So this is interesting because they can't oust him. 
because he's been democratically elected by the fourth district. But they're obviously, at least Desmond is telling him he should resign immediately. And now he's trying to say, maybe we need, don't need to pay him, you know, because he's making 275 grand a year. Plus he gets, um, a sa- uh, besides a salary, he gets a car allowance and retirement benefits and insurance. So that, that gap in time between his, between his, um, you know, announcement that he was going to resign, which happened in late March, to actually resigning, which happens on May 15th. They say that's going to cost the county about $30, $37,000. And Dan Besmas is saying, hey, man, we, why do we need to pay him for this? He should just be stepping down. So this, this, is, this is very interesting. And I, I know some of the other board of supervisors are – you know, they're, they're kind of being careful on what they can say here, because on one hand, I'm sure they would like to see him go away, you know, because Fletcher is just a distraction and a spectacle and it's getting in the way of the things they want to do. But at the same time, they can't force him off. You know, th- this guy was democratically elected. And the other interesting angle to this is that, for, you know, for the longest time, the San Diego Board of Supervisors was Republican dominated. But. Now it's has a Democratic majority, which, by the way, is sort of reflective of all of San Diego County. San Diego County overall is a Democratic majority, um, but it's only a three two. So if they remove Fletcher, who's a Democrat, then you've got a two two split on the board. And that would be really interesting to see how they would resolve that. So I'm, I'm very curious to see what they end up doing here now. Public support on this. And by the way, I'm kind of quoting from an article in the San Diego Union Tribune. Public reaction swiftly turned from an outpouring of support for his decision to seek mental health treatment to disgust as the allegations and his delay in acknowledging those allegations. Desmond went on to say, it's clear to me that this was a ruse To cover up infidelity and other alleged crimes, Mr. Fletcher's actions are causing unneeded distractions. He needs to resign immediately. So what a mess they have on their hands. I mean, what are your thoughts on this? Should Nathan Fletcher resign immediately? And then what's the decision-making process on how they bring an appointment back onto the board? Now, this is an interesting topic. You know, I live in Poway and putting um, together appointments to replace council members that have resigned or taken other jobs or, you know, this happens where a council person in the middle of their term for whatever reason leaves their seat. How should they be replaced? Should the existing council or in this case, the existing board of supervisors nominate a replacement? Well, they should at minimum on a temporary basis, because the voters in Nathan Fletcher's district deserve representation. But then, is this thwarting the will of the people? Because the will of the people wanted Fletcher, but if he's out, then shouldn't the will of the people vote again for a replacement? A lot of times people say, oh, the election is going to cost too much money, but isn't that the whole point of local government is to have local representation? So I would hope that maybe they appoint someone on an interim basis and then have an election in relatively short order to find a permanent replacement. Because if they appoint a person and they don't have an election right away, 
that appointment will be the incumbent the next time there is an election and they'll have a, a significant advantage. And I don't think that's really fair in the process either. So, um, again, I was supportive of Fletcher for seeking help for his issues. Uh, clearly, we're all disappointed, in some cases, angry about what we learned about him and what went down. Um, yeah, it's got to be tough on his family. I mean, it's got to be tough on a lot of people. But the right thing to do here is for him to step down immediately, appoint someone on a short-term basis, have an election, and then move forward so they can be constructive. So let's see what happens there. Um, okay, before we get to some of these other topics, and by the way, if you have comments and thoughts, drop them into the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We'll get you involved in the discussion. Um, if you want to learn more about this podcast and my project, the John Riley Project, you can go to my website. It's johnreillyproject.com. There I've got all kinds of uh, episodes that are listed there. YouTube video clips are there. You can get see some blog articles I've written, ways to connect on social media. You can sign up on our email list at johnreillyproject.com. Or if you'd like to be a guest on the podcast. You know, you probably see my camera rotating around. I've got another chair here for a guest. If you'd like to be involved in this and kind of break down the news highlights of the day, love to have you here. Um, so just drop me a note at johnreillyproject.com. <laughs> Ed Franklin on the live stream, a crooked politician. Wow, that's strange. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, there's crooked politicians at all levels of government, right? And there's obviously a lot going down right now with Trump and New York and all that. And I'm not going there today in this podcast. I try to stay local with San Diego. Sometimes I'll drift and talk about national stuff. But San Diego's had a lot of controversy with elected politicians like Randy Duke Cunningham and like um, uh, what was the guy's name that was the uh, the congressman from East County whose father served for a long time and then Junior took over and then he got into a disgrace. Uh I can't remember his name. He got into trouble. Now Nathan Fletcher. There's a long history of other of other people in San Diego, in City Hall. Even, you know, um, Roger Hedgecock. Gosh, it's just a long track record of that. All right, let's move on. And let's talk about the next topic on the table. And we're going to talk a little bit about homelessness. And to me, th this is an interesting issue that broke recently. And it's an article in the San Diego Union-Tribune. And you know, we've all, obviously homelessness is a huge crisis. There are more and more people living on the street. The data backs it up. The homelessness is growing. More people are becoming homeless than are coming out of homelessness and finding a place to live. And, you know, there's there's not only is there a challenge finding them places to live, but there's also a challenge of some of the riffraff and crime and, and problems that are on the sidewalks. And in the parks where a lot of the homelessness are setting up camps to live. So there's this is a multifaceted, multidimensional problem without any single silver bullet solution. And, you know, my previous podcast, I went on and I said the, 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 the number one thing the local politicians should be doing is allowing more construction of housing units so the housing crisis can relax. So housing can become more affordable and therefore make it easier for those that are homeless to to get go from moving living in their car to living back into an apartment. Um, but there was an interesting piece of news here, and this is from State Senator Brian Jones, who 
represents me in Poway, and he's, I think he's from Santee. So it's kind of a bit of East County, a bit of North County that he represents. And he's putting together a bill to target the encampments to make sure that they get removed, you know, because of all the, the tents and all the other kind of riffraff and, and disruption that are on the sidewalks. And what's interesting here is how it's being politicized because the Republicans see homelessness policy as a politically potential, uh, you know, a great opportunity for them because so many people are so concerned with it. And so they're finding ways because usually the homelessness crisis has been dominated partly by Democratic leaders that are showing their love and compassion to try to find these people homes. But the Republicans have sort of been a bit hands off, not being too aggressive, too hardcore. Well, now that's starting to shift because, you know, just about everybody is is compassionate and wants to see homelessness people find Homeless people find a place to live, but at the same time, they don't want them living on the streets. And so now the, the GOP politicians see this as an opportunity to really galvanize support. Um, homelessness is a top issue for Californians across the political spectrum, according to polls. So what Jones wants to do, Brian Jones, the state senator, he, like I said, wants to remove a lot of these camps where people have set up on sidewalks and in parks literally wants to clear them out. And it's sort of putting the Democrats in an awkward position because this is a policy that is already being used in the democratically controlled parts of Los Angeles. L.A. has an aggressive approach to removing homelessness. Now, I don't know how successful they are. I know I, I know last time I was in Los Angeles, there was a great deal of homelessness. But he's trying to make a statewide policy to aggressively kind of disrupt the encampments and kind of essentially kick them out. Mm-hmm. Of course, the question is, is, where do they go? And that was one of the objections from another state senator, a guy named Scott Weiner. That's a tough name if you're a politician. He's a Democrat from San Francisco, and he's against a statewide policy. He says, you know, each local municipality can find their way to do this. But what's interesting is, is that Wiener is also proposing, and I like this policy, proposing a statewide, essentially, limitation on what cities can do for their housing ordinances, you know, because so many local cities and their and their not in my backyard NIMBYs have prevented development of housing, and that's led to the housing crisis. And now Sac- Sacramento is basically telling these cities, "You need to build more. You can't zone off these areas. You can't protect these these neighborhoods from multifamily dwellings. You need to build more." And he's pushing this for a statewide uh, solution. But he doesn't want to have a statewide solution for this homelessness issue because he wants the local municipalities to manage it their own way, where the NIMBYs want local municipalities to manage it their own way. So it's funny how it kind of goes both ways. Um, this bill by Jones, what it would do, it would ban people from sitting, lying, sleeping, or placing personal property on any street, sidewalk, or other public right-of-way within a 1,000 feet of any, quote, sensitive areas defined as schools, daycare centers, parks, and libraries. 
Violators would be charged with a misdemeanor or infraction. Authorities would have to give people a 72-hour warning before taking action. So what do you think of that? Is it proper for local government officials, for the police, to literally oust people from these encampments? Now, in my opinion, that's the right thing to do. I mean, that's, it's one part of an overall solution. But the problem is, is logistically, how do you make that work? And where do these people end up going? It just became, comes like a game of whack-a-mole where they, they're just going to keep moving around and never really find a permanent place to stay. Um, now, apparently, this gets a little bit tricky, too, because there are local laws that already exist that would charge people for illegal lodging and blocking public rights of ways. Okay, that's good. However, um, that some cities have been challenged in enforcing those laws because there was a federal ruling which prohibits enforcement of anti-camping ordinances if shelter beds are not available. Now, you remember in our last episode, we talked about how the, the, the city of San Diego or the county of San Diego was coming up with this mobile app to help the homeless find a place to live. And remember at first I was like, are the homeless going to use this app to find a place to live? And maybe some of them would, um, but a lot of them probably wouldn't. But I think what this app does is it tells you if there are available places, available shelters that are nearby. So if they're now going to have authorities go in and sort of kick them off the sidewalks, off the public right of way, well, then they can actually now begin to direct them to a local place where there are shelter, where there are beds available. That's a good news. So in that, in this case, the, the authorities wouldn't just be just hard asses kicking them out, but they would actually be able to say, don't set up camp here. Just go six blocks down the road and there's a shelter. Or on the other side of town, there's a place where you can stay and they've got, you know, 10, 20 beds available. Now, this is starting to make a lot more sense now. I mean, because we know from a macro perspective, a lot of the reasons for the homelessness crisis and, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do with housing policy, not enough supply to meet the demand and high prices. But there's also addiction. There's also also PTSD. There's also economic hardship that people are feeling. I mean, there's a lot of reasons why people are homeless. And each of those need to be addressed. But in the short term, right in front of our nose is that we've got encampments that are set up in a lot of these cities. And, you know, the people that live in those communities shouldn't have to put up with that, especially if that's a public right of way, especially if that's a sidewalk. That's a sidewalk is for people to walk. And technically it's city land, sidewalks. And so the city should be enforcing how that land is used, particularly if people are doing things that are illegal. So it makes sense that they need to find a way to clear them out, but they got to have a place where they can go. Now, some have talked about creating some kind of a, a, an encampment in East County where they and we'll just all send them out to East County, you know, somewhere in the boonies. But that doesn't really solve the problem. There's even been one suggestion that they set up an encampment on Miramar, on the naval base, 
or Marine Base, pardon me, um, just east of the 15 in that big wide open space of land. That's an interesting idea too. But again, I think it's going to be a little bit of whack-a-mole and you're just basically moving people from one set of tents to another set of tents. Is that the right air solution? It might be incrementally better than what we have now. But the whole idea that if they can find a way to use this app to find housing nearby, find shelters, find beds nearby, that's win-win. The homeless person wins. They get a temporary place to stay that's warm, that has a roof over their head, and you know they're not out in the elements, and potentially have some services there to kind of help them get on their feet. And at the same time, the people in the local community are winning because their neighborhood kind of gets cleaned up. And I think that's good. So, um, so it's interesting what Brian Jones is trying to do here. And it's interesting how he sees this as a political opportunity. Um, yeah, I mean, the article goes on, and I, I just think this is just an interesting topic. I mean, people were saying the pendulum has swung too far the other way in terms of being uh, tolerant of the homeless. Because, you know, we, a lot of people have compassion. They have big hearts. They, they don't want to kick people out. They, they want to see the homeless live and survive and thrive, and they don't want to be hard asses and, you know, boot them. But at the same time, it's gotten to the point now where many communities, it's just, it's a mess. It's unsafe. It's not just unsafe for the people that live in proper housing there, but it's unsafe for the homeless to live there. Particularly during the winter with all the elements, with all the weather, with all the rain and cold, that's not safe to say nothing of whatever riffraff is going on down there. So this is a solution. Well, let me just say the homelessness crisis is, is a problem that is multidimensional and there is no silver bullet. And politicians are trying to solve it. But what's interesting to me is, is I, I believe politicians created the problem. They created the problem when they restricted development of housing to satisfy NIMBYs in their, in their district so they can get reelected. By limiting housing, the supply was limited, but you know, demand, especially in America's finest city, demand for housing kept going up with limited supply. That's what caused housing prices to go up. That's part of the reason why people can no longer pay rent because the price went up. PTSD plays a role. A lot of these uh, military guys coming back from Afghanistan, coming back from Iraq, that are mentally not 100%. And they're not getting the care that they need. And they end up sort of falling off the edge and becoming homeless. But, you know, who put those guys into a place to be in a war for 20 years? Again, politicians, they created the problem. I mean, you can break this down in a lot of other ways, but these politicians are struggling to come up with a solution, mostly because they don't want to be looked at as someone that is um, not compassionate. In, in other words, they don't they want to ensure that they're reelected. That's their priority over actually solving the problem. 
But that's how politicians act and behave is for them. It's all about maintaining that, that set of power. Now, here, this is interesting, too. A February poll by the Public Policy Institute of California showed that seven in 10 Californians view homelessness as a big problem for their state. Among likely voters, more Democrats than Republicans cited homelessness as their top issue by a two to one ratio. Wow. So what do you think? What do you think should be the solution to homelessness? You know, we're seeing, you know, I live in Poway. There's homelessness in Poway, too. It's not as visible as it is in downtown San Diego or in other parts of the county, but it's it's everywhere. And it's a real crisis. It's a crisis for the homeless. It's a crisis for the people that are living in neighborhoods where the homelessness are. It's a crisis for the overall housing market. I mean, besides the fact that homeless people, for whatever reason, you know, fall off the edge and are no longer able to rent an apartment because of any number of economic conditions. Well, that same problem with the housing crisis is making it really hard for hardworking people with jobs to find housing. That's why so many young adults are living at home with mom and dad. Because they can't afford a place on their own, or certainly they can't afford to buy. But in some cases, they can't even afford to rent because the pricing is so insane. So the whole market's distorted. And homelessness is one of the symptoms of the problem that was created by these politicians. They were quick to create the problem, although it was an unintended consequence of their original policy, which was limiting housing because those evil developers are making profits by building housing. You know, a lot of locals don't want more construction. They don't want more traffic. They don't want more stress on their infrastructure. They don't want, they want their city to be like it was or at least like it is, they don't want change. We see so much of that here in Poway. But now that there's a lot more development going on, there's going to be a lot more housing. In my opinion, that will help ease the housing crisis and will have an indirect way to help the homelessness crisis. It's multi-level indirect, but it will. Um, But, you know, again, I think the NIMBYs are losing traction right now. They're losing power. And they're losing influence. And it's tough. And people are angry about it. So, And now we have homelessness. And again, it's not in my backyard. Nobody wants homelessness in their backyard. They want to just kick them out and they'll go somewhere else. But it doesn't always work that way. Okay. Um, Let's move on um, from this topic. Again, we welcome your thoughts and comments in the community forum. Just type them in on the live stream on Facebook or on YouTube. You know, we take this uh, podcast and we will... Um, break it into chunks and pieces. And we, we share all those individual segments on YouTube. We have a, you know, we have a nice small or, um, group here that are watching on the live stream. If you're watching right now, thank you for watching. We got so much more viewership and listenership to the podcast on the audio only platforms because, you know, we're on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts and Spotify, Stitcher. I mean, all of them. 
And then a lot of people watch these on YouTube, but especially when I break each of these new segments into an individual clip on YouTube, get a lot more listeners and viewership there. Um, so encourage you to check out those clips if you're on YouTube, and particularly if you comment on them, because I get YouTube commenters involved in the community forum, which we'll be talking about here at the end. Okay, the next topic on the table is we're going to talk about this Poway Unified School Bond Measure that's coming. I, and, you know, we already had one person in the, in the live stream commenting on this earlier, and that was Steve Moz. And he said, I hope someone has a solution to the Poway Unified School District school debt bomb. Well, there's more talk, more discussion about this. And so let's, let's break this down. Now, last week, we talked about a news article that came out in, in our local NBC Channel 7 news talking about the, the infrastructure problem at Poway Unified Schools with roofs leaking and their safety issues. And they're right. And it was kind of setting the stage for a school bond which I, I told you, I, I'm predicting it's going to come. We had a school bond measure fail in 2020, largely, I think, because people are still angry about the billion-dollar bond that went down about 10 years ago, where the school district borrowed roughly $100 million and agreed to pay it back with $1 billion, roughly, over the course of 20 years. And that's a bond that they've already spent the money, and we haven't even started making payments on that money. We won't even start making those payments, I think, until 2033, or is it 32? It's one of those. I think it's 33. And then it'll go on for 20 years. So the money they spent on that billion-dollar bond has been spent. We haven't made payments on it yet, but the money's been spent, and already those upgrades are failing, and they need more money to fix the upgrades they were supposed to fix 10 years ago. So a... Op-ed came out in PomeradoNews.com, which is the website that covers the Poway News Chieftain and the Rancher Bernardo News Journal. It's like our local newspaper here. And it was an op-ed from PUSD Superintendent Marion Kim Phelps. And it was titled, Back to School, Is the B Word a Bad Word? <laughs> and I saw this headline and I, was, I wasn't even thinking about the bond because you usually think about a, a B word means something else, right? And and generally, that is a bad word. Um, but then I, I opened up the article, and I went, oh, okay, we're talking about the bond. So this was Mary and Kim Phelps. And again, I'm, a lot of these articles are from the Union Tribune or from local newspapers. So I include all the links in the show notes. But Phelps said, nothing elicits groans among Poway taxpayers like the B word, bond measure. After the previous school district administration's bad bond deal in 2011, voters have been reluctant to vote for another bond measure. It's true. It's very true. Uh, because in the, in the 2020 bond, I think they needed 55% to, to pass it, and they ended up only getting 52 or 53. Um, so in the past, school bonds used to get in the, in the low 60s. But remember, they could never pass it even back then. This was like... 20 years ago because they needed a two thirds majority, but now, you know, they, they ended up being able to change the rules. So school bonds only need a 55%, but support for the bond was lessened because people are still bitter about the billion dollar bond. And I count myself as one of those. 
So according to Phelps, recently NBC7 did a news story on this fact showing how badly things are deteriorating at some of our schools. Roofs are leaking onto students and teachers in the classroom. Drains are backing up and flooding locker rooms. And she's right. That's true. That's happening at Poway High. The locker room flooding. The drain's not working. Um, The media, community members, family, even staff were shocked. And I remember there was some of this when they were preparing for the 2020 bond that failed. They were showing pictures of some of this failing infrastructure. And they're not lying. I mean, there is a need to fix these things. But it makes you wonder why in the heck wasn't this fixed with the money that they spent on the billion dollar bond? Or if it was fixed with the money they spent on the billion dollar bond, why did it not? Why did it fail so quickly and they have to they have to fix it again? Now, I think the the gyms, locker and everything at Poway High School, my understanding is, is that the billion dollar bond money did not address the Poway High locker room problem. They, They were spending on on other things. My understanding was they did a lot of re-roofing, you know, because no one wants classrooms to be leaking water. But already now they, they are. And it just makes you wonder how in the heck could this happen? Um, and Phelps goes on to say, this is not from neglect. This is not from financial mismanagement. Rather, this is from a lack of funding. The district receives, and then, you know, bold face underline, the district receives no funding for school facility upgrades and modernization needs from the state. Instead, the state asks local communities to pass bond member measures to fund their local school buildings. Well, that's not entirely true. See, the, the Poway Unified School District gets a roughly a half a billion dollars, you know, $500 million a year to run the school to run all 39 schools. And that pays for, traditionally, it pays for the salaries of teachers and staff members and counselors and food service workers and bus drivers and maintenance guys. And it covers, you know, all their benefits, uh, health care, dental care, pensions. And then it covers a lot of other things like, you know, books and school supplies and, and the like. And they, that money is keeps going up. They keep getting more and more money from the state. And what they've been doing is paying their employees, paying the teachers more and more. And, you know, and do they deserve more money? Perhaps, probably. I mean, with inflation going up. But what they've done is they've, they've rewarded the employees at the expense of other things. There's money in the budget. There's $500 million a year in that budget that they can spend however they want including on making upgrades to repair roofs. They're already doing that now. I can all get into that. So to say that the state get no funding, boldface underline, for school facility upgrades is not true. Now, they, they, uh, the, the paradigm has traditionally been that they'll go to the voters at the bond measure. But they don't have to do that. They can pay for it out of that bond. I mean, out of their... Um, annual budget. Now, I even said if they just took 10% of that budget, which is roughly about 50 million a year and allocated that over 20 years, that's a billion dollars in, 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 uh, in money that could be allocated for this. They could self-finance it 50 million a year in upgrades, or 
they can go out and secure their own loan and pay it back over 20 years out of that $50 million a year payment. Perhaps they secure an $800 million loan, pay it back with a billion dollars over 20 years. They can do that. I mean, $50 million a year is just 10% of their overall budget. That's what Jack Welch, when he was the CEO at General Electric, he used to talk about finding ways to identify and cut the bottom 10% to find efficiencies. And there are things they can do. They can outsource their trucking. I mean, just yesterday I was on Tell Williams Parkway and what's the, what's the school there? Is it Shoal Creek, I think? Um, no, I don't think it's Shoal Creek. It's some other school that's there right off of Ted Williams where they built the overpass. Um, and I, there I see a Poway Unified school truck coming, you know, it's delivering supplies, maybe food. I don't know. But those are those are trucks that are owned by the school district, being driven by school district employees who are paid reasonably well, but they also have that long-term pension obligation with every one of those employees. Whereas if they found a third party to outsource the trucking to someone else, then they can better manage, better control that expense. They don't have the long-term obligation for the pension program or for the health benefits and a lot of other things. And they can set up a, a, a competitive bid process to try to maximize their savings. And there's a lot of other aspects of the school district that could be outsourced like this. Now, I'm not talking about teachers, but I'm talking about IT, payroll, trucking, warehousing, maybe even food services. A lot of this could be outsourced to, to save money, to, to create space in the budget they could use to pay for this bond. But you know the bond measure is coming. There's already talk of this, and it's going to be, <laughs> it's going to be coming. So Matthew Brannigan on the live stream says, the B word, it's illegitimate either way. Okay, well, there are a lot of people that support having a bond. I mean, remember last time they had 52, 53% of the populace voted for it. And I think that was a, if I'm trying to remember, was it like $400 million, $500 million they were considering borrowing? But now... They're talking about borrowing a lot more, like $1 billion, $1.5 billion. In fact, in one of the surveys that they put out to the people, they asked them, you know, how much would you be willing to borrow in order to vote yes on a bond? So they're, they're really trying to get their ducks in a row, and this is coming. And, you know, they have legitimate problems with the infrastructure in these schools. The question is, is, is how are they going to fund it? Um, she said, Phelps in the op-ed said, the funds generated from those previous bonds have all been spent. Yeah, that's true. The money has all been spent, but we haven't yet started making payments. So if you're a property owner here in the Poway Unified School District, particularly if you're on the east side of the 15 where there's no Mellow Roos, you know, we, we got all the upgrades but we haven't even started paying. We're not going to start paying until 10 years from now, like 2033. It'll go until, I think, what is it, roughly 2052. We're going to see a line item on our property tax bill that we pay every April. Was it every April and every November, if I recall? Um, we're going to have a line item there that's going to be hundreds, if not thousands of dollars a month, depending on the value of your property. Excuse me, hundreds to thousands per year. I said that wrong, per year, depending on the value of your property, to fund 
this school bond. And so now if they come with a new school bond, we already got one layer of payments that are going to start in the 2030s. There's another potential layer that could probably start even sooner. Is that right? Is that proper management? Now, this is where uh, Phelps went on to say, Poway Unified has devoted millions of dollars in general fund money, which is what I was, that's the $500 million a year operating budget, you know, roughly $500 million. Um, has devoted millions of dollars in general funds to the maintenance and upkeep of 41 campuses. Just a few examples in recent years include $300,000 to replaster Poway High's pool, $600,000 in parking lot repairs at Canyon View and Los Penasquitos Elementary, a million-dollar roofing job at Twin Peaks Middle School, another $1.2 million paint job at Highland Ranch Elementary, and a $10 million heating, ventilation, and air conditioning overhaul at Bernardo Heights and Rancho Bernardo High School. Yeah, that was the big one in the news. So they're already doing that. They're already funding upgrades and infrastructure improvements out of the general fund now. Why can't they just continue to do that? And then it's also interesting if, you know, if roofs are leaking, I mean, that's obviously a serious problem. But why would you... Like they said here, they've they're they're spending money to upgrade a parking lot at Canyon View and Penasquitos Elementary, and to do a paint job at Highland Ranch Elementary. I mean, what's more important, fixing the leaking roofs or repainting a school? So I mean, it's a lot of this has to come down to priorities. Um, but I know what they're trying to do is they want to pass the bond so they can get the money to make all these fixes, which I get it. But what they're really doing, the unsaid thing here, is that they're leaving as much money as they can to pay the teachers and pay the other employees and pay the top management who are making hundreds of thousand dollars a year more and more money. So what they're doing here is they're trying to look like they're altruistic, but in fact, they're really trying to pursue their own self-interest without really saying it straight up that way. So let's go on with what the article had to say. Phelps goes on to say, it's just a matter of time until all the major systems at all our schools eventually fail. Okay. A little bit of catastrophization, if that's a word. Um, and yeah, things, some things are going to fail. Because they're not being kept up. Like the the air conditioning at Rancho Bernardo High School and at Bernardo Heights Middle School. I mean, that was ridiculous. It was in a heat wave and the air conditioning wasn't working. They had to send kids home because it wasn't safe. You would think that school safety would be one of their highest priorities. But again, they want to deflect it. Now, they had to fund the air conditioning immediately out of the operating budget. I know they didn't want to do that. They would rather have given that money to the teachers so they can be paid more. So then the teachers could return the favor and endorse the school board incumbents so they can get reelected. And then a happy quid pro quo relationship can continue. So uh, Phelps goes on to say, and as more and more general funds have to be diverted to fix facilities instead of funding programs, the quality of our children's education will suffer. The children, 
What she should have said is, is that as more and more general funds have to be diverted to fix facilities instead of funding programs, we'll be unable to reward our employees as much as we would like to. So what they want is to have their cake and to eat it too. They, they want to be able to reward their employees to the maximum, which I get. I understand that. I mean, a lot of them deserve it. But then they want to essentially deflect and offload a lot of this upgrades to infrastructure that legitimately need to be made and put that back on the taxpayers who are already feeling angry about the previous bond. And that hasn't even we haven't even started paying on that. And now they're going to add another layer of payments. And you're like, well, what the heck? You know, why is it that we have to pay for this when you guys are in a position when you can tighten your belt and optimize your budget and you can make it work? Um, So Phelps goes on to say, so we are asking for your help to build a better future for our children, our schools and our community. And. She goes on to say that they have made changes to the way that they manage their finances at Powell Unified, and they have. They've, you know, they, you know, gosh, probably about 10 to 15 years ago, there was a lot of mismanagement, particularly under the John Collins era when he was superintendent. It wasn't just the billion dollar bond, but there was embezzlement of money and, and a lot of fraud um, of vacation time and a lot of other things. A lot of unscrupulous things going down at the school district. Fortunately, he's gone. The school board members have passed the billion-dollar bond. They're all gone. That's good. And they've made some changes. You know, they've optimized some of the other uh, special tax bonds and general obligation bonds to they essentially refinance them to save money. Um, they're, they're going through a lot of procedures to optimize their credit rating so they can pay lower rates. And they're finding ways to be a lot more transparent and open with the public with their budget. That's good. And they're kind of like saying, well, don't blame us. It was the other guys. It was the previous regime, John Collins and all the previous school board members that screwed it up. So don't blame us. Okay, I I understand that. But, you know, the taxpayers are the ones that have to pay for this. We've already we're already paying for the guys that screw it up. And now we got to pay more. So. I know I, I, I have a problem with that. So she goes on to say, following the mistakes of the previous administration, our public demanded we do better. And we have. And as our Board of Education explores whether to place a bond measure on the 2024 ballot, we pledge to earn back voters trust and continue our transparency. OK. And I, I bet and, and they are doing that. I'll give them credit there. They are doing that. They have improved. There was a a serious structural deficit there for a while, about eight years ago, because of mismanagement of finances. I don't know what the status of that is now. I know they're getting more money from the state, particularly in COVID, they got a lot more money. And whenever the state is enjoying a bit of extra cash, a lot of times the governor will kind of spread the love and give more money to schools. And that certainly helped them. But are they making, are they really looking at this Innovatively, Are they looking at ways to sort of restructure the way they do business? That they essentially can have a lot of these services that are provided to the school district for a lower price, particularly if they outsource it. And if they did, with that clear enough space in the budget that they could self-finance 
their own infrastructure improvements? I think they can. I mean, it wasn't too long ago what their school budget was over $100 million a year less than what they're getting now. They were getting like 300-something million. Now they're getting close to 500 million. So we'll see. I, I, I predict there'll be a bond measure on the ballot in 2024. Even Phelps is admitting that they're considering it. And it's probably going to be something that we'll see, I would assume, on the presidential ballot, which will be in November of 2024. So more will be coming on this. Okay. Um, if you want to, you know, we're talking about Poway Schools. Uh, I got a website that I'd love to tell you about. It's called PowayIsAwesome.com. If you go to Poway is awesome.com. You can get all kinds of, uh, you know, backgrounds for your phone, you know, uh, wallpaper that shows photos of Lake Poway, of Iron Mountain, of Old Poway Park. And they work on uh, iPhones, on Androids. They're perfectly sized for that. There's other versions that work great on a a tablet or on a desktop computer. So if you go to PowayIsAwesome.com, you just sign up, put your email there. You'll get a free downloads, and you can enjoy those uh, screen backgrounds that showcase the city of Poway. So I hope you get a chance to try that out. All right. Let's move along here on the agenda. we got a lot more to cover. Oh, my God. We're at 56 minutes. And we still have like four or five more topics plus the community forum. Thank God I take this in YouTube and split it into pieces because when I do – then people can absorb each of these in bite-sized chunks. All right. Um, Let's move on. We're just talking about Power Unified Schools. I want to talk briefly about how school enrollment is down throughout San Diego County. This is interesting to me. Um, So the headline here in the Union Tribune says, San Diego County schools are still losing students, but fewer than early in the pandemic. Here's how each district is faring. So apparently, overall, enrollment is down 1%, but it was down 5% since 2019. Since pre-pandemic levels, it's down 5%. Um, And this article goes through a lot of the data. I mean, I'll just quote some of the data here. County public school enrollment fell by 4,300 students, or just under 1% from last year. In the fall of 2020, enrollment in San Diego County schools fell by 12,700, or 2.5%. So it's still falling, falling, but it's falling at a lower rate. And what makes this interesting, really, that I think a lot of people, especially Marion Kim Phelps, the superintendent at Poway High or Poway Unified, she's looking at these numbers and she doesn't like this either because they get paid revenue. The revenue that comes into the school district is based on how many students you have. And I think. They, they, there's a way that they optimize enrollment. I, I'm trying to remember how the math works, but it's they're always targeting 95% or up of the enrolled students to show up to school. They'd want a low absentee rate because the more students to show up to go to school, the more money they get on a per, per dollar per year or per student per year basis. So when enrollment is down, that means less funding for the schools. And not only does Superintendent Marion Kim Phelps or school board members in a lot of all the school districts throughout the county don't like that. Parents don't like hearing that. But that's what's going on here. So um, it's interesting, too, that San Diego County schools have enrolled, enrolled, this is an increase, increase more homeless students and students with disabilities. That's interesting. 
the homeless, you would think the, the, the students, I mean, it'd be hell to be a kid and be homeless. But I would imagine that a lot of homeless families, there are probably a certain amount of transitory dynamics going on where they might be bouncing from one school district to another. I'm sure that has an effect. Interesting students with disabilities, those numbers are going up overall in the county. And I think that's because there's a lot more programs that are available for students with disabilities and more more are qualifying for those. That's my hunch on how that's working out. Um, but yeah, the article goes on to say, for public schools, lower enrollment means less funding. And some parents have said they left school districts because of how they handled distance learning and school closures early in the pandemic or because of what they see as the political nature of what's being taught in schools. Now, this is very true. Um, people during the pandemic were frustrated because for a long time, the schools shut down. And then they tried to do classes over Zoom or the equivalent of Zoom, which was I mean, maybe you can make that work for high school kids, but for a third grade class trying to do it on Zoom, I mean, it's pretty much a waste of time. So a lot of parents saw that and they were saying, this is ridiculous. Or if the schools opened, they were in these, you know, plexiglass contained bubbles, each student, or there was just a lot of, a lot of, uh, how should I say, hurdles that just got in the way of teaching And so a lot of families took their kids out of these schools, out of public schools, and put them into private schools, put them into charter schools that were actually open and functioning. In fact, La Jolla Country Day, we've talked about them, a private school out by UCSD, they were barely closed at all during the pandemic. In fact, what they did is they brought in air filtration devices into each classroom, and they opened the doors and windows periodically to air out the room. They had the students exiting and re-entering the building, you know, every 45 to 60 minutes. And that on its own made the virus far, far, far less contagious. And they had very little problems with COVID at La Jolla Country Day. So there were ways this could have been done in the public schools, but the public school officials chose more aggressive standards, mostly shutting down the schools. And it makes you wonder, are they in it for the children or not? Or are they really there to protect the employees, protect the teachers? I mean, what's the, they say that they're there for the kids, but if you're there for the kids, then why aren't you opening up the schools? If you know it's been proven that they could open them up and still be able to conduct schooling safely. Um, But a lot of other people, what they did is they took back their kids and they homeschooled them. And we saw a huge surge nationwide with homeschooling, not just amongst religious people, but amongst people that legitimately wanted a better education for their children. So those numbers went up a lot, and there's a lot more programs that are available for homeschooling. And that's to me, that's interesting, especially during the pandemic when a lot of parents were home a lot more because of the stay-at-home orders. Because they were able to work remotely, they were able to do some of this from home, although that imagine juggling that. Working from home and being a teacher from home at the same time, that's tough. But other families, they had the means and the ability to have one spouse or one parent do the teaching while the other one worked. They had that luxury. 
But, the, you know, but the other part of this is, is what they saw as the political nature of what's being taught in schools. And there are a lot of objections to that, too, you know, mostly from people that are on the far right wing that are upset with. I mean, we can make a long list of all the, the issues, you know, diversity issues and um, inclusion issues. I mean, there's a long list of other items there that are mostly agenda of those on the left that the people on the right don't like. Now, we can talk about the value of each of those, and I've done podcasts on them. But there's a lot of people that are upset with that, and they pulled their kids out. So these are the reasons why. And this is another interesting angle, too. Here it says, a February report by experts at Stanford University and the Associated Press found that more than 150,000 California students went missing during the pandemic. Missing. Meaning their disappearance from public schools could not be attributed to moving out of state or switching to private schools or homeschooling. That's interesting. Kind of makes you wonder because, you know, as more people, it's funny how all these topics are are connected, housing, homelessness, schooling. It makes you wonder if families became homeless, then they were taking care of their kids. And maybe those kids weren't going to school. But then they were sort of off the radar and not being tracked in public schools, in private schools, or in homeschooling. Interesting how this all breaks out. I mean, because there's been so much chaos the last few years. Um, The first reason that many local school districts give to explain the enrollment declines is the high cost of living in San Diego County, specifically the lack of affordable housing. So again, remember, all these topics are intertwined. So school enrollment is dropping partly because of the housing crisis. I mean, gosh, you look here, I I live in Poway. It's not easy to find a place for sale that's less than a million dollars. It's hard to live here, you know, and now they're building condos that are going to go for like $700,000 on Poway Road, which is still a lot of money. But people are angry about that. Because they don't want more disruption in their community. And so that's part of the reason why we have this housing crisis and all these unintended consequences that affect school enrollment. Enrollment goes down. Funding to schools goes down. It creates homelessness and it creates a lot of other problems. Um, This is interesting. Poway Unified, the county's third largest district, has seen enrollment drop 5 percent since 2019. And it's tracked where families go after leaving its schools. Most often, the district found they moved out of state, while fewer left for California districts, charter schools, or another country, according to Carol Osborne, Poway's associate superintendent for learning services. So this is part of the California exodus thing, where there's a lot of people in California that are leaving the state, and they're moving to Texas, to Florida, to Tennessee, to Nevada, to Idaho. There's a long list of places where Californians are moving to because it's become too expensive to live here. Because the cost of living is so high, because housing is by far the most dominant expense that people have, the cost to buy a house, the cost to rent a house is astronomical. Why? In my opinion, they are not building enough. They're not building enough supply. 
But what, hap- what does this end up having, this unintended consequence? It results in people leaving the school district, leaving the state. And now school districts have less money. Now, granted, you would think that, well, okay, they have less funding to the schools, but they also have less students. So proportionately, that should be okay, right? Now, granted, it doesn't always work out perfectly because it's not like an entire sixth grade class moves out. I mean, these people are scattered across all the different classes. But the school districts need to respond to this by consolidating. They need to be able to consolidate classes, in some cases, consolidate schools, And if they do that, then they'll have less employees, less overhead, and save money so that this doesn't become a problem. But if your enrollment is down 5%, you can't expect that your funding overall needs to keep going up, up, up. If your enrollment is down 5%, maybe you need 5% less employees. And... Maybe there's a way to take 5% of your budget, maybe 10%, and allocate that to infrastructure improvements. Local districts are also trying to combat declining enrollment by promoting and expanding specialized programs and course offerings, including non-traditional schooling options that became more prominent during the early years of COVID. This sounds encouraging. I like this. For example, Vista Unified, which plans to consider consolidating schools because of failing and falling enrollment, is expanding its magnet school programs and academic and social services to mitigate enrollment declines, according to Superintendent Matt Doyle in Vista Unified. Poway Unified has promoted its varied school options, which include a hybrid school that combines online and in-person learning, a virtual-only school, a homeschooling program, and dual-language programs, according to Osborne. That's good. Um. It's And I, I've been a big proponent of what Poway Unified is doing with bilingual because they, they have the Spanish English class, uh, school, Valley Elementary. There is a Mandarin English school that's in Penasquitos. Westview has ROTC. Poway High has 4-H. A lot of these schools are kind of finding specialized things to teach the kids. To me, this is good. And to me, it's good to see that these school districts are finding ways to be innovative and to compete to keep their students. This is generally why I'm in favor of school vouchers. I mean, if, if the government is going to fund schooling, if the government is going to commit to education, then I think parents should be able to choose the best school that meets the individual needs of their student based on their academic requirements and needs, based on their interests, based on their conditions. And if we had vouchers, we'd have a competitive environment. We'd have schools, not just private schools, but public schools aggressively increasing their capabilities and offering programs to attract students to perform at a higher level. That overall brings up all schools and gives parents choice on the best fit for their kid. Because if you're living, let's just say I'm in Poway, and if you are your 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 child is going to one of local Poway elementary schools, but they would want maybe this is a family with a with Chinese heritage, and they would like to have a a dual language Mandarin English program, and they want to send their kid to the Mandarin school that's in Penasquitos, it's part of Poway Unified. Well, they should be able to do that. 
I mean, regard, even if there aren't vouchers, they should be able to do that within the school district. And I would hope that they provide that kind of transfer capability to accommodate those parents that are willing to drive their kid, you know, five, six miles to school back and forth each day. But imagine then if you kind of took that same concept and then removed it out of the government monopoly of education and really opened up the education marketplace, we would see a surge of innovation, a surge of new curriculum of specialized skills that would be taught by a lot of brand new schools on the scene that would be competing for these students and would provide competitive pressure on these public schools to raise their game. That's a good thing. It's a good thing for the parents. It's a good thing for the children. It's a good thing for the public schools. But the public school establishment doesn't want the competition. They don't want vouchers. That's a dirty, ugly word to them. But it's good to see at least some of these schools are making moves to raise their game and improve their performance. And I like that. I hope you do too. Okay, so... um, we're going to move on. Before we do, you know, we're, I talked a little bit here about Poway Unified in this, uh, in this segment. I have another website if you want to check it out. It's called PowayStore.com. And if you go to PowayStore.com, I've got a bunch of merch with Poway logos, Poway logos, coffee mugs and T-shirts and sweatshirts celebrating Poway, the city and the country. So if you go to PowayStore.com, you can check out that merchandise, and I welcome you to check it out. And by the way, if you've you got some ideas on new kinds of products we should put in PowayStore.com, uh, let me know. You know, I've also secured the URLs for a lot of the other communities. I think I have one for Rancho Bernardo Store and Penasquito Store and 4S Store, a bunch of them. So eventually, I'd like to build out more of those for the community I live in. I just haven't gotten there yet. But if you have demand for that, let me know, and we could set something up. Okay, let's move on to the next topic on the table. Gosh, we're already at an hour and 13 minutes. This is going to be a long episode, but we're going to provide all these clips on YouTube so you can watch each one individually. Let's talk about cannabis and Rancher Bernardo. Uh, This is a fascinating discussion, and we've covered this in detail in some of our previous episodes. So here's the deal. In Rancher Bernardo kind of near the ran- the intersection of Rancho Bernardo, or excuse me, Bernardo Center Road and the 15. You know, there's a McDonald's there. Across the street from the McDonald's, there's a shopping center that kind of goes way back into the corner at kind of a funky angle. And there's like, I know there's some Japanese restaurants that are back there. Um, you know, to the side there, there's a, a great Mexican place. I think it's called... Is it Rancho Viejo? I was just there this morning. I had a breakfast burrito. But if you go way, way in the back, there's an old building, a two-story building. It looks like a you know Spanish architecture. And it used to be an El Torito. Like, gosh, five years ago, eight years ago, a long time ago. And they shut it down. And now it's being proposed to be an urban leaf cannabis dispensary. And the moment they announced that they were going to do this, All the people, well, not all, but many of the people in Rancho Bernardo were all, you know, concerned about this. And so it's gone through some of the planning commissions in Rancho Bernardo. They're objecting to it. And so what's happening now, this is the latest news on this issue, that the appeals opposing the Rancho Bernardo cannabis outlet are going to go to the county commission on Thursday, which is tomorrow. 
April 6th. So appeals filed by the Ranch Bernardo Planning Board and resident Rob Brienza to oppose the approval of a cannabis outlet at the former El Torito restaurant will be heard at 9 a.m. Thursday by the San Diego Planning Commission. At issue is Urban Leaf's application to open an outlet at 16375 Bernardo Center Drive, which is the former location of the El Torito. The issue has been discussed by the planning board since 2019. Wow. Um, And there's been opposition to the outlet's location, including those who live nearby and the Hope United Methodist Church, which has a preschool on the property. They say that the proposed outlet is too close to homes and child-oriented facilities per city code. I mean, what do they expect is going in here? Is it going to be a bunch of hoodlums, like crime? I mean, what, what do they think is going in here? This is a cannabis dispensary. This is like a place that sells medicine. But people still have this sort of, um, what, do, what do they call it? Reefer madness, this sort of voodoo opinion of marijuana. And they get into a kerfuffle about all this. So, um, but imagine they've been discussing this since 2019. So imagine you're an entrepreneur and you want to open up a legitimate business that's legal in the state of California. And you've been fighting with planning commissions. You've been fighting with the city to get this approved. It's now 2023. It's been four years that they're going through this just to try to open up a business in a building that's vacant. It's been vacant for years. That frankly, I bet you a lot of the other businesses in the area would like to see it open so it can bring more people into that shopping center and more exposure for a lot of the other businesses that are located nearby. But yet this continues to be a problem. So apparently the city of San Diego approved this. But then appeals were filed by the planning board in Rancho Bernardo and by a local resident. And so those appeals are going to be heard tomorrow. And we're going to find out. So let's see if this actually comes to a full conclusion. I'm curious. Um, This is a topic that I've been following off and on for the last year or two. Um, So it's interesting to see some new development. Matthew Brannigan says, that location has been empty for 12 years. (laughs) We need something there. Yeah. I mean, put the land, put the building to productive use where people can be employed and customers can get products and services and the building and the facility can be useful to suppliers and workers and investors and customers and everyone else that participates rather than being a vacant building, dormant, doing nothing. And God forbid you're the landowner there. You're paying property tax on that every year and you can't monetize the asset. It's crazy. So hopefully this is something they they can come, come and resolve. It just seems that The mentality of people are spooked by this. They think it's going to be something that is going to invite the wrong element into Rancho Bernardo. Well, I'm I'm sorry. People in Rancho Bernardo are already consuming cannabis. In many cases, they're ordering it from companies, legal companies, not drug dealers, legal companies in San Diego. And it's being like Uber Eats driven in and delivered. And what do people use cannabis for? 
People use it to calm themselves. It's way safer than alcohol. They use it to resolve glaucoma. They re- re- do it to use it to reduce the anxiety and depression that comes with a lot of various mental health issues, including PTSD. Um, it's not reefer madness, people. So let's see. Hopefully, this passes, and let's just move on. You know, my my hometown of Poway, they don't allow cannabis dispensaries in Poway, which I find just insane. They have they have liquor stores, like little itty bitty local liquor stores that sell nothing but booze and soda. But they don't have marijuana dispensaries. Just odd. It's just a double standard, in my opinion. Um, okay, let, let's move on. And uh, yeah, Pete Neal on the live stream says PTSD. Yeah, for sure. There are people that have legitimate health issues. Cannabis is a medicine that can help people relieve their their anxiety, their depression, their stress, and allow them to live more comfortably and do it legally rather than having to get stuff from guys in a back alley and provide economic benefit for the Rancho Bernardo community. Oh, here's another comment here from Matthew Brannigan. Relieve the side effects of chemotherapy. Yeah, that too. I mean, it's insane that this is such a problem. It was, it's, it's still on the schedule one on narcotics list at the federal level. That's unbelievably stupid. So let's again, come on, come on, Rancho Bernardo. Let's, uh, let's see this kind of, let's, let's evolve into the 21st century. Pete Neal says, I see it as supporting the troops. Yeah, for Sure. You know, because Rancho Bernardo is all about America and they like to have big celebrations and patriotic celebrations. Well, yeah. Troops coming home that have PTSD, they need to get medicine, legal medicine. And there are veterans in Rancho Bernardo that are having to jump through hoops and get it delivered from far outside the community when they can have a, a dispensary in their community that sells medicine. I mean, They already have CVS and other drugstores, Walgreens, that sell medicine. What's the problem here? Okay, I'm ranting. Okay, let's move on. Uh, A couple more topics before we get to the community forum where I already have a bunch of YouTube comments here. Gosh, this is going to be a long podcast, but I'll have a lot of segments to spread around for the next week. That's good. We're going to talk about La La Mesa now, okay? And I I thought this was interesting. And again, all of these topics are intertwined. Homelessness, school enrollment, housing crisis, even the marijuana dispensary is kind of indirectly connected to a lot of this. And this is in the city of La Mesa. They're overhauling their permitting process after review found the city lags way behind all the other cities. And you're thinking, okay, Riley, this is like some bureaucratic thing, like a building permit guy is kind of slow and they don't really do this. Well, this is a big problem. This is a problem that's damaging not only the city and the revenue the city can enjoy, but it's, it's, it's partially harmful to the housing crisis. So this is, this is something. Um, and uh, gosh, Yuri Bolin just had a comment on, on marijuana. Let me go quickly back. I'll, I'll tell you what, Yuri, I'm going to save that for the community forum because I've already turned the page. We're talking about La Mesa. But I'll, I'll get your comment in in the community forum. Okay, so... Here in, in La Mesa, 
La Mesa leaders have approved several changes to how construction permits are issued after an outside review found the city moves slower than its neighbors. According to council member Laura Lothian, she shared about a story about a local owner who'd recently shuttered a potential site for new businesses after feeling like they've been, they spent years running in circles. This is an embarrassment. Our permit process in La Mesa is dysfunctional. Officials blame several factors, including lack of staff and leaders noted the La Mesa has twice the number of ADU applicants and some, than some other municipalities. ADUs being the accessory, accessory dwelling units or granny flats. They're getting twice the number of applicants for those in La Mesa, but yet they're, they don't have enough people and their systems aren't accommodating it and they're being slow. Businesses can't set up their business, kind of like the Urban Leaf and Rancho Bernardo. They can't get a permit. So government bureaucracy is making it harder to do business in La Mesa. Government bureaucracy is making it harder to build more housing in La Mesa, which then that ends up having a cascading effect on the housing crisis, on high home prices, on homelessness. And probably driving people out of La Mesa to move out of state to, so they can live more inexpensively and driving school enrollment down. Although that's not really said in this article, but that's probably one of the impacts. This is, this is interesting to me. They're all so interrelated. But there's another story coming out of La Mesa. And this is a funny one. It's about digital signage. So they're talking about, you know, these big billboards that they have along the side of the road. They want to put digital ones, you know, that are like lit by LED lights. And this is sparking like a big debate um, in La Mesa and in other parts of the county. Critics have raised concerns about visual pollution, while proponents highlight the opportunity to promote local events and raise extra revenue. So they want to put in these billboards, you know, that are like a, a flat screen and they can rotate the image like every eight to 10 seconds. You know, so the billboard company doesn't have to put up a new billboard, you know, with how do they do that? It's like wallpaper or something similar to that. Some kind of a cover they put over it. Um, and people are upset about this because it's too much visual pollution. I mean, are they upset that it's a sign or are they upset that it's a lit up sign? Well, here's a little more information here. Critics have raised concerns about visual pollution and their potential to distract drivers. While proponents highlight the opportunity to promote local events and raise extra revenue without new taxes. Um, according to La Mesa Council member Patricia Dillard, we want to do more for our city and we can't do it without money. I also see this as a positive. So they're going to make money on this. That's interesting to me because um, I always assume that the billboards were privately owned and on private property, and therefore the, only the private property owners would make money on it. But maybe there's some kind of fee here or some kind of a tax. I don't know. But let's go through the article a little further. El Cajon has considered a similar measure, and the city of San Diego may install dozens of digital kiosks throughout downtown. Okay, so this is an issue in other cities. And each sign would display a digital image for eight seconds before switching to the next. The company would annually pay the city $125,000 per structure, an amount that would increase 3% each year. That's a lot. So there must be some kind of a tax that they have on this. Um, and they, they, you know, Dillard, the council member, was really supportive of this because 
they wanted to put a sign up at MacArthur Park that could display Amber Alerts, missing person notices, and drunk driving reminders. And they emphasized these wouldn't be in neighborhoods. But, you know, it's not just going to be community service kind of messaging. I'd imagine there'll be legitimate advertisements. But hopefully advertisements for local businesses. I I see this as a good thing. Um, But again, this is similar to the housing problem and the NIMBY problem is where people resist development, resist change, resist what I'll call progress. They just want to freeze time. They want to hit the pause button on their old VCR and, and just freeze time rather than allowing an evolution. Because, you know, more people are moving in to San Diego. There's more business here, more economic opportunity here. That's why there's more housing needs here. And so a lot of these areas that were considered suburban are becoming slightly more urban. And we're seeing that in Poway with a lot more of these condos and apartment buildings that are being built. We're seeing that in other parts of San Diego, in the city of San Diego, where they're blocking off streets and making that whole area walkable so cars can't get through. But even in cities like La Mesa and other cities throughout the county, like Escondido, too, they're building more and more housing. It's no longer like a a sleepy bedroom community, a suburban area. It's becoming slightly urban, like an urban-suburban hybrid. And then... You go further out on the fringes of the county to the rural areas, and those are becoming more suburban, like Lakeside and Santee and Alpine, et cetera. So we're going through this change. There's resistance to change. I understand that. I mean, people, when they bought their house in Alpine or wherever they bought their home, they want it to be just the way it was when they bought it because that's what they bought. But life goes on. The world goes on. People make changes. Other people move and things progress. Um, And people are resistant to that. And I think that's why we have a housing crisis. That's partly why we have a homelessness crisis. That's partly why um, we have problems with the schools and funding for the schools. It's getting people resistant. Imagine if there's more housing in Poway Unified. That means more students in Poway Unified, which means enrollment goes up and therefore funding for schools goes up. Those that are proponents of public schools should think that's a good thing. But they, but a lot of them don't. And a lot of them don't want to have more housing in the area. That's interesting how they're all connected. Okay. I've gone through my laundry list, my agenda, um, and there was a lot there. A lot of these, I, I, you know, I go through the local news. And the San Diego Union Tribune webpage is usually my go-to source. But I go also go to the Times of San Diego. I go to... Um, the Times Advocate in Escondido. I look at the La Jolla Light and a lot of the other local um, publications, just trying to get some interesting local news um, that I think are worthy of discussion, worthy of comment. And what I find is, is that a lot of these issues are are, are consistent. They're, we're finding common problems and, and varying solutions in all the cities in San Diego County. And frankly, a lot of this is happening throughout the state. Education, housing, economic issues, environmental issues. Every city is tackling these things. Energy issues, another big one. All the cities are tackling these things, but there's a lot of consistency. So a lot of times when I'm talking about Poway and what's going on here, most likely those same kinds of issues and same kind of problems are in Imperial Beach or in El Cajon or in Vista. 
Um, so I don't know. I, I think this is interesting. Um, and I always enjoy your thoughts and comments. So actually, I promise, let's go to the community forum segment. And I promise you, Yuri, we get him involved here because we do have one of his quotes here from the comment section. And he said, Yuri Boland, by the way, former mayoral candidate here in the city of Poway, he says, I know we differ on this, John. It was a long topic on our podcast episode, but no amount of tax revenue is worth the corruption of our youth in a brick and mortar store. If you order it from home, okay, can't stop that, but at least it won't be as bad. See, I don't, I don't see this as a corruption of our youth. Now, you know, liquor stores are not, you know, the most, you know, elegant, beautiful places, especially old school liquor stores, you know, on a corner or in a strip mall. But it's not like those liquor stores are corrupting our youth. I mean, kids are getting alcohol through other means. Kids are getting marijuana through other means. But it's not like we're going to have a marijuana dispensary and suddenly middle school students are going to be lined up for miles like they're for the new iPhone or when they open up a new mochi nut where they all show up. It's not going to be like that. I mean, you know, to order cannabis at one of these dispensaries, you have to be an adult like like when you go to a liquor store. You know, uh, there is no utopia and there's upsides and downsides to everything. Right. I mean, I'm not saying you put in a cannabis dispensary and it's all, you know, unicorns and rainbows. I mean, there's going to be issues. There's going to be some problems and nobody wants everybody walking around stoned. But I'll bet that the upside is far greater than the downside by having a marijuana dispensary at that location. Pete Neal says, I'm willing to bet there are more teen grave sites due to alcohol in Poway. Oh, I agree with that. More teenagers in Poway have likely died from alcohol than from marijuana. No, I, I'm certain that's true. And then Yuri Bolin says, it's all good, John. At least we still have baseball, my friend. And yeah, Yuri is a great baseball fan. And we love talking baseball. That's the beauty of having friends with a diverse range of interests, right? That's what makes life interesting. It gives us something to talk about. If we were all the same, we all like the same things or dislike the same things, it'd be pretty boring. But have a diverse group of friends, in this case, friends that are also people that enjoy these live stream podcasts. Yeah, we have baseball and Padres are on the road heading out to Atlanta and then New York. That's going to be a big road trip for them. Okay, we got a couple more things here in the YouTube comments section. And this is from uh, the podcast video clip I did on San Diego homelessness, you know, when, when they were breaking down all the demographic data of where homeless people are coming from and the fact that more are becoming homeless than are becoming housed. And Jen October responded on the YouTube channel and said, the focus of these studies needs to determine where they came from, their location, their education level, their past three jobs, skill level, chemical use and dependency, use of prescription pharmaceuticals, use of financial welfare or medical welfare, criminal status, full-scale demographic assessments, start building production factories to build American-made goods and ban, block, abandon, restrict, limit foreign imports. This is just a start. That's a lot in there. Well, I think they're, they're doing a better job now of, 
of doing a census of the homeless and, and at, at, at the very minimum, just counting them. But then the demographic profile. Yeah. I mean, that makes sense to me. I agree with you there. You know, where are they from, their education level, the circumstances that led to their homelessness? And then what kind of job skills do they have to potentially be employed? Chemical use and dependency is an issue. You know, we're just talking about cannabis, but I'd imagine that those that are homeless that have addiction issues is probably a lot worse than cannabis. Um, but the comment in that, that, that Jen October makes that I, I take objection to was the last sentence. And she says, start building production factories to build American-made goods and ban, block, abandon, restrict, and limit foreign imports. So this is consistent with the idea, and this kind of goes to Trump and trade policy and China and all that, um, where they want to put tariffs on imported goods, where they want to block imported goods. And they do that. The, the idea there is that, okay, well, then they'll make those goods here in America and provide good union American uh, jobs in the manufacturing sector. I understand that angle, but when you do this, when you have tariffs that raise the price of imports or when you block imports entirely, what you're doing here is you're rewarding the few at the expense of the many. You're rewarding the few that work at the factories in America and that own the factories in America by preventing competition from imports. But then you benefit those few, but at the expense of the many, because every one of us pays higher prices in the form of imported goods with tariffs or in the form of domestically made products that are just more expensive. I mean... There's a number of examples of this. I mean, I, like right now, by the way, do you know there's like a huge tariff on shoes um, that can range for anywhere from like 20% to 50% on the price you pay for shoes? You know, and how, how many shoe manufacturers are left in America? Probably barely any. They're almost all made in Asia. But yet these tariffs remain. And it doesn't matter if they're sneakers or boots or you know, high heels, they all have varying tariffs depending on the category of the shoe. And that tariff was made to somehow, you know, to protect the, the American shoe manufacturers. But now like 90-something percent of all shoes are made in Asia and imported. So now the price of shoes is a lot higher. Who does that damage the most? The poor. Probably the homeless to get a, a pair of shoes. Um. You know, even like things like baby formula. Remember we had that baby formula crisis um, a few months ago? They weren't making enough baby formula and then a plant shut down because they had some manufacturing problems and suddenly there was no, there was no baby formula on the shelves. Well, the reason is, is because they blocked imports of good baby formula from countries like Germany and the Netherlands and Ireland that had the equivalent of an FDA that tested and screened all this. It was really good, safe baby formula, but they wouldn't import it into America because they had these, these bans on imports to protect the domestic manufacturers, to protect the few at the expense of the many. And then who does that hurt the most when there's a baby formula shortage? Well, prices will go up for baby formula. The rich people can afford it. The those that are poor, God forbid, those that are homeless and have an infant, 
they're really going to be in trouble. So I, I take objection to that last part from Jen. I, I think doing the the census and the demographic analysis of the homeless is a great idea so we can better understand what's going on in their world and better find solutions to homelessness. And the solutions to homelessness are going to be multivaried, multidimensional. Every person's story is different. And there's going to have to be like a 10-pronged solution to this. But there's no shortage of jobs. I mean, unemployment remains very low. There are a lot of companies that just need warm bodies that can help. And if some of the homeless folks are capable and willing and can be good employees and show up to work on time, I'm sure a lot of them could be employed. And it doesn't necessarily need to be at a shoe manufacturing plant. It could be for a lot of businesses, not just manufacturers, but distributors and service businesses, et cetera. Okay, let's let's move on. A couple more comments here on the live stream. Uh, Pete Neald, what's baseball? Um, <laughs> Matt Brannigan says, baseball is a game that's just slightly more exciting to see than watch paint dry, Pete. Yeah, and uh, Pete goes, you're absolutely correct, Matthew. So you guys are haters on baseball. Baseball is the greatest sport on the planet, in my opinion. Okay, but I digress. Let's uh, go back through here. We've got a couple more YouTube comments. Um, and... This one is about the farm in Poway, and this is about the um, the lifetime fitness that's being proposed there. And, you know, there was a guy on our YouTube channel that was saying, hey, Riley, how, why do you see, th- th- think this is good for Poway to put a lifetime fitness location in? Why do you think, is, is that progress? And I tried to address that in the last podcast episode where I said, yeah, I think overall the project is good for Poway. Overall, the project is progress. And we can debate, you know, the size of the fitness club. But Wave Dog 100 said, my criticism was not the farm project, but specifically the location and size of Lifetime Fitness proposed deep in a residential area. In most places, these large fitness clubs are on major streets or part of a commercial plaza. It isn't as simple as, quote, if you don't like the traffic and activity, don't buy the house, unquote. I think he's quoting me on that. Um, Changing the size of the fitness uh, facility by plus 10 times, 10x, is not a minor change. It would make a mockery of voting. Allowing a major change to the plan would potentially encourage the practice of developers proposing voter-friendly plans to attain approval with the intent to change the plan later without voter approval. Like the or the city council approving it, which is what's happening now in Poway. This is interesting because there's a couple of angles to this, and I agree and disagree um, with uh, Wave Dog 100 on this. So we agree that that this is making a mockery over the ballot measure. You know, the, the 2020 ballot measure was to allow a rezoning of the location of the old Stone Ridge Country Club, the golf course, the tennis club. And rezone it so that it could be used not just for outdoor recreational, but it could be used for housing and commercial, et cetera. And that vote, remember, it failed in 2017. It passed in 2020 largely because Kevin McNamara, a local Powegian, a well-known Poway guy, a commercial real estate guy, was behind this. And he put on a, a campaign and got it to pass. Kevin was a guest on my podcast, and we had a three-hour conversation. Go back. It's episode number 100. And he made a very 
big point that there will be no changes. He was adamant about that. Well, here we go. Here's a change. And it is. It's a significant change, you know, from a 3,000-square-foot club to a 30,000-square-foot club. This is like a club that you might have a couple of rooms and some weight machines to a, excuse me, a full-blown commercial enterprise like 24-hour fitness but on steroids. This is a high-end club with high-end um, services. Um, and yeah, it's, it's not going to, it's not going to be a minor thing. It's a big thing. And so, yeah, I mean, if, if, if you make the, if you pass a bond or a ballot measure that there'll be no changes and then you do changes, it does, it sets that up where in the future you have a precedent and then people begin to doubt whether or not the ballot measure was even worth its salt. Now I'm of the opinion Maybe you may agree or disagree, but I'm of the opinion that something like this never should have gone to the voters in the first place. If people have land and they want to build on that land, then they should have the ability to do it because it's their property. And oh, by the way, we have a housing crisis. And this is good to solve the housing crisis. And oh, by the way, that was a dormant piece of property. It was unproductive. It was... Um, like a like a like a suburban you know wilderness jungle, it invited homelessness camps, and it was completely unproductive because the the golf course was no longer a profitable enterprise. So this is a big upgrade all the way around. You know the people that live nearby are disrupted. The people that live nearby want to go back in time when they could have their backyard on the 18th fairway. You know, that doesn't exist anymore. That that reality no longer exists. There's still people that are angry about this. There's still people that are angry about it because they're really angry about development all throughout Poway. There are people that are angry at Kevin McNamara. Will this end up getting approval by the city council? I don't know. I bet it will, though. I bet it will. Um Knowing what I know of the city council members and sort of their outlook on the local community, uh, Kevin McNamara also is a very well-known, kind of knows a lot of the people in town. He has a certain degree of pull in the community, certain degree of respect, although I think some might challenge that, those that are uh, opponents of Kevin. Um, but I think this is going to end up passing. Will this end up being like like some you know huge facility in a in a residential neighborhood? Well, that's... That's to be, I think that's to be determined because all along there was going to be a commercial zone in the farm already that was going to have a restaurant, that was going to have, in this case, a a workout facility, that was going to have swimming pool and tennis courts or pickleball courts. There was going to be a, um, a, a barn or some kind of a large facility that could be used for weddings or other kinds of community events. That could be rented. There was going to be a farmer's market there. There was going to be a, an amphitheater there, like a small amphitheater for like music, music and other kinds of performances. So there's already a commercial district there. Now, granted, is it going to be like Carmel Mountain Ranch community? No, it's going to be a lot smaller. Is this going to be like some ugly, you know, some ugly, obnoxious building that doesn't fit? The profile of the farm? My hunch is no. 
My hunch is they wouldn't be that stupid to do that. But we'll see. I mean, it, we'll see what happens. It hasn't been approved. But there's a lot of really good, healthy conversation at Poway about it. Okay, there's one more comment here in the community forum. And this is another YouTube comment. And it's from this guy's handle is Death and Taxes Abolitionist. And he's commenting on the piece we discussed last week about the home, the potential that home prices in Poway could go down because of the infrastructure trouble with Poway Unified. In fact, Mary Kim Phelps sort of hinted at that in her, her op-ed. You know, do we take pride in our schools? Do we want to have good schools and we want to have good home values? You know, she's trying to encourage people to invest in the upcoming bond that they're planning. But this, this, uh, this YouTube commenter, Death and Taxes Abolitionist, said, School districts got, got rid of a shop class in order to focus on diversity and social justice. Now they fall apart, but at least all students have an equally crappy school building. Okay, let's break this one down. There's a number of angles here. It's true that there are a lot of the vocational studies, like shop class. I mean, when I was in high school, I, I remember I had wood, a wood class and a metal shop class. That was kind of cool. I enjoyed that. But I know, you know, college isn't for everybody. And so there, were, there was an automotive class at my high school. And I know Poway High has an automotive class where you can like literally repair automobiles. And there's a lot of other kinds of vocational study that can be done that can provide really good skills for students that for whatever reason, they don't want to go to a four-year school, but they want to get some real-world training that they can use so they can get a job when they graduate from high school. But a lot of those vocational studies have been eliminated, mostly because they were deprioritized, because these uh, schools, particularly the high schools, trying to get every student to go to college, they wanted to have really high college acceptance rates because that made their school look better. And so the culture around the school, the parents that live there, all encouraging their children to go to, to college, okay, which, which is good, but it has been done at the expense of those that aren't pursuing college. And those that wanted to take a shop class, yeah, those shop classes, a lot of them have been eliminated. And there have been, been conversations from a number of school board candidates here in Poway about bringing back more of those vocational classes, either directly in the school or in partnership with local businesses. Now, that's good. And yeah, while those have gone away, we've seen more in the cases of diversity and social justice. This goes to the political agenda of some of our friends on the left that are bringing into the schools that are causing our friends on the right to abandon the schools and go to do homeschooling or to, to move out entirely or to go to a charter school. But I mean, it's, it's not a direct replacement. It's not like we got rid of the shop classes so we can do a diversity and social justice classes. That's not what's happening. But long term, yeah, a lot of that's true. Um, and he goes on to say, but now they'll fall apart. At least all dozen, all students have an equally crappy school building. Yeah, the schools are having trouble with their infrastructure. The roofs are leaking. The drains are not working in the Poway High uh, locker rooms in the gymnasium. I mean, there's a lot of problems that need to be fixed. But it's, it's not 
necessarily because of diversity uh, classes and social justice classes. It's just the fact that, in my opinion, the school district is not prioritizing their needs properly. I mean, obviously, the point, the whole purpose of schools is education. So you have to have good teachers and a good curriculum. And we can debate if there's if there's shop classes or diversity classes or, you know, we can talk about the content. But obviously, the focus needs to be on education. But school safety, like having good buildings so students are safe and they can learn in a comfortable environment. Yeah, that's really important, too. I contend that there's a way that they can optimize their operating budget. They already get 500, roughly $500 million a year in revenue. Why not take 5 10% of that budget and allocate that to infrastructure improvements, either by self-funding it every year or by going out and getting a loan and then paying back that loan over 20 years without burdening taxpayers because the taxpayers are already burnt because of the billion dollar bond. And oh, by the way, that even started paying on the billion dollar bond. And now they want to add another bond on top of that, which total together is going to be hundreds, if not thousands of dollars per year per homeowner. That's a big ask. Okay. So uh, what else here in the live stream? Got a couple more comments. Um, Pete Neal says, hey, John, Corvette ranks third in the co-god listing of American-made cars. <laughs> okay. And uh, Yuri says, Prop FF, you know, that's – Prop FF was the measure in Poway that was passed in the late 1980s that, that set aside significant portions of Poway real estate as um, not eligible for commercial development, not eligible for higher density, density living. But it's not, it didn't affect the whole city. So Yuri says Prop FF works. They voted on it. I believe it was 63%. Unlike most of Poway, there is no vote. So those who are still upset have to move forward. Yeah. So that's the angle is that Poway Road and all that development is going on at Poway Road, which is making our friends in South Poway so angry because more disruption, more traffic, more people, more stress and in infrastructure, more kids in the schools, yada, yada, yada. Well, that section of Poway Road was not included in Prop FF. And that's part of the reason why there's been this sort of friction between North and South Poway. And some people say there's a lot of friction. Other people pretend the friction doesn't exist, but it exists. We can debate the degree of how much it exists. And yeah, when they passed that ordinance in the late 1980s, they wanted to keep Poway the, quote, city in the country. They wanted to prevent homes from having high density um, on their lot. They wanted to have, you know, larger lots. You know, so that, that means they want the, the back part of the lot to be open space, to be avocado trees, to be a barn with horses and not a granny flat that you're renting out you know, to, to two different families, you know, two different granny flats in your backyard. They didn't want that. They wanted to keep Poway the city in the country. That's why a lot of people love the city. But what was interesting is that even though they passed that, in the previous years, they had already developed a ton of Poway. 
in the 1950s, the whole Garden Road area was built up. The neighborhoods along Pomerado Road were greatly built up in the 1950s and 60s. And then even into the 1980s, we saw a lot of North Poway begin to be developed. Now, I didn't move to Poway until 96. The home I live in, I live in North Poway. The home I live in, I think, was built in 89. Um. So it seems that after that wave of development in the 80s, which was mostly in the northern part of Poway, that's when they said, okay, let's shut down development. But what's interesting is, is that they didn't shut down development for the whole city. So only those neighborhoods that were affected by Prop FF had to go to a vote if you wanted to change the zoning. That's why the farm in Poway had to go to a vote because it was at the Stone Ridge Country Club, which is in North Poway, which is part of the Prop FF geography. But other parts of Poway, like Poway Road, were not covered by Prop FF, and the city council could unilaterally make decisions to rezone that land from commercial to residential, thus allowing all the development on Poway Road. It is a double standard. It is a different set of rules for different people. If Poway wanted to be the city in the country, you think they would have preserved it for the whole city. Some say, well, the Poway Road area is the city part of the city in the country. Okay. But is that really what they meant when they made that slogan? Frankly, if Poway was the city in the country, they wouldn't have built a lot of Poway in the first place. But like we said earlier, life progresses, people move on, families grow, population in San Diego grows, people move in, there's progress, there's development. You can't freeze time. But the end result of this is it is a, a two sets of rules. Prop FF for me, but not for thee. And that's that's definitely true. And uh, it's a shame that it's that way. Now, in my opinion, there should never have been a Prop FF in the first place. Because if you own your property and you want to put a granny flat in your backyard, you shouldn't have to get permission from a government bureaucrat, particularly one that's in La Mesa, let's say you want to put a granny flat in La Mesa, and the bureaucrat's slow and, and can't process your permit because they don't have people and they don't have a good enough computer system and they're slowing down what you should be able to legitimately do on your own property. So I don't think Prop FF should have happened in the first place. And granted, I wasn't living here at the time. I probably would have been part of the 37%, Yuri, that went against it. Okay. Um, wow. We have covered a lot. This is like a two hour podcast. Wow. So um, we, we went through, God, what do we cover? Let's do a quick review. Uh, we talked about San Diego State basketball and their triumphant run through the final, through March Madness and being the national runner up, which is tremendous. Um, Nathan Fletcher and the scandal around him. We gave an update there. We talked about homelessness and how it's being politicized by Republican politicians. That's interesting. We talked about the potential of a, of a new bond measure with Poway Unified, the cannabis dispensary outlet in Rancho Bernardo. There's going to be an update on that tomorrow. The appeals are going to be heard in the city of San Diego. We talked about school enrollment across San Diego County is down. We talked about the dysfunction in La Mesa with their permitting and digital signage. Um, we did our community forum. We talked about a bunch of things there. Um, this has been a great conversation. Um, I invite you also to check out my website, johnreillyproject.com. You can get more updates there. And uh, be sure to check out the videos on YouTube because I'll be breaking these into individual segments so you can consume them one at a time. And 
Yuri says, that's fair, John. No FF or all FF. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to have an ordinance like that, it should apply to the whole city, not just part of the city, because then you create divisiveness within the city. And that doesn't make sense to me. Um, I'll close on this. This is the last comment I'll make. And uh, you're looking for something to watch on, on streaming media. I just watched this new show and it's on Amazon Prime and it's called The Power. And it's really, really good. Um, and it's a, basically about, it's a bit of a kind of a sci-fi, but with a philosophical foundation. And so it's about young teenage girls have this new formed superpower to be able to emit electricity and giving them like essentially like a superpower. And this is causing all kinds of um, disruption in society. But the underlying tone throughout this show is about how women were kept down by society. You know, when they would tell women, oh, you're being too emotional. You need to calm down. (laughs) And they bring up a lot of this, uh, I guess, gender stereotyping in it. And this is a way for women to fight back on it because now they're being given the superpowers and there's, there's been three episodes released right away and I'm really enjoying it. I I generally like a lot of dystopian sci-fi stuff, but I really love the fact that this has this underlying philosophical message that they're trying to deliver basically to have, you know, they want to have, you know, gender equality, or at least they want to be able the women to fight back. Well, now they're going to be able to flip the script on its head where women are going to have more power than men. And I think we're going to see how this unfolds, but I, I just strongly recommend it. It's called The Power and it's on Amazon Prime. And I'd encourage you to check that out. Okay, friends, two hours and zero minutes and 30 seconds. That's long enough. Um, have a great week and we'll talk to you real soon. Bye-bye now. If you enjoyed today's show, do me a favor, subscribe and then share it with a friend or leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let's continue the conversation on social media. Go to connectwithjohnny.com to get links to our social media content, audio podcast platforms, and to sign up for our mailing list. To be a guest, read my blog or get more information please visit johnreillyproject.com to get started.